Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On this week's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Dr. Christine Cologne. Christine received her PhD from the University of California at Davis, and she is professor of English at Wheaton College. Christine has written two books on Dorothy L. Sayers, entitled Writing for the Masses, Dorothy L. Sayers and the Victorian Literary Tradition, and Choosing Community, Action, Faith, and Joy in the Works of Dorothy L. Sayers. Christine has published a number of articles on 19th century British writers, such as Jane Austen, the Brontes, and Charles Dickens. Welcome, Christine. Thanks so much for coming on the Alabaster Jar. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to talk with you. Oh, I am so excited. We're going to get into Dorothy Sayers. We're going to talk about Jane Austen. Uh, I oh, love those authors. Um, but before we jump into those, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your story. How did you how did you get um, interested in in pursuing these authors and uh, literature? I mean, you're an English teacher, professor. Um, so, you know, how, tell us a little bit about that journey and your interest in this. Sure. Um, so I was one of those little kids that as soon as I learned to read, I just started devouring anything that, you know, came in front of me. Um, in fact, my favorite picture of me as a child, I'm in our backyard, I'm sitting on one of those little kids slides, but I'm not sliding down, I'm sitting there holding a book and reading. <laughs> um, and that's really, you know, representative of my childhood. And so I just, I loved disappearing into other worlds and all of that. And so that continued um, through high school. And so when I started to think about what I wanted to major in in college, um, I thought, well, you know, I mean, it seems stereotypical to want to go into English and want to be an English teacher, but it's what I loved. And um, so, yeah, just initially thought I was going to teach high school. And then once I got into it, um, it just really wanted to dive deeper. And so I'm like, yes, I will go all the way and be able to do this um, with college students. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah, yeah. And one of your recent books published in 2017 is about Dorothy Sayers. Um, it's called Writing for the Masses, Dorothy L. Sayers and the Victorian Literary Tradition. Um, and I, I have to say, um, for me, being my first introduction to Dorothy Sayers was as an undergrad, and we read Gaudy Night. And, uh, and I was hooked. Um, so, you know, you spent a lot of time actually um, at Wheaton College, where you're a professor in the English department, they have a way called something called the Wade Center, which includes um, Sayers papers. You spent a lot of time researching those. And so the, part of your um, book is related to that primary research um, that that you did. But um, before we get into like all that stuff, I just love to know um, what was your first introduction? When did you meet Dorothy Sayers? Was it Gaudy Night or was it uh, another of her books? That's actually a really good question because I 
um, started reading detective fiction pretty young. I was probably like fifth or sixth grade when I discovered Agatha Christie and started to devour Agatha Christie mysteries. Um, but I did not encounter Dorothy Sayers. Um, I don't know why. Um, and it wasn't until I started teaching at Wheaton College where we have the Wade Center and Sayers is one of the writers that we have there that I thought, okay, I should probably read Sayers. And so I thought, okay, I'll start at the beginning. So I started with her first um, mystery novel, Whose Body? And I read it and I thought, eh, it's okay, but it's not that great. Um, And so I actually didn't read any more Sayers for a while. And then the next thing I read was Gaudy Night. And I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, she's brilliant. Why didn't I see this before? Um, And so once I read Gaudy Night, then I'm like, okay, now we've got to go back. Um, And so Gaudy Night and then The Nine Tailors are kind of, for me, the best of her mysteries. But um, I'm realizing, yeah, probably not the best to judge the author on the first novel she ever wrote. You know, it's like- That's that's generous. That's right. Yeah, try a few more. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, you mentioned Agatha Christie, and I'm, I've read her books over and over and over again. And Sayers um, does have not not quite Poirot or Miss Marple. She's got Lord Peter Whimsey. And she has as her female uh, character, Miss Harriet Vane. And, uh, and as a way kind of to get into Dorothy Sayers's own life, uh, people have pointed to Gaudy Knight and maybe some of the overlap in that novel with her own. Can you tell us a little bit about who Dorothy Sayers was and, you know, what, what she experienced in her life? Sure. Um, so Do- Dorothy Sayers was the daughter of a minister. Um, she was the, an only child, um, was what we would call homeschooled today, um, and didn't go to way, away to school until she was um, kind of later adolescent. Um, she went to Oxford, and that's really where she started to blossom. She loved that academic community. Um, and that, I think, comes through really clearly in Gaudy Night. Um, one of the great things about that novel is that it gives such a lovely um, kind of image of Oxford, of academia. And yes, it's a little romanticized. You know, everything is just, you know, this kind of ideal. But I think it really does demonstrate how um, formative that time was for her and how it really influenced her. Um, though, interestingly, she did not go on to be an academic. I mean, you would think that that would have been the next step. Um, She didn't. Um, She had a hard time after leaving university figuring out what she wanted to do. She worked for a publisher for a little while. Um, She taught for a little while, taught high school for a little while, um, discovered that that was not her calling. Uh, Don't blame her on that. Don't judge her there. I'll tell you, that's a you need a special gift to do that. <laughs> yeah. She actually worked in advertising for a while and created several really famous advertising campaigns um, that she enjoyed. She liked doing the wordplay of, you know, clever ads. Um, but she really, you know, was trying to figure out how do I make a living? And she loved popular fiction and thought, well, why don't I try writing detective fiction? Um, and so, yeah, she started writing, um, and gradually with Lord Peter Whimsey became, you know, really well known for her detective fiction. Um, and then what's fascinating about her is then, um, she actually shifts in her career, 
um, and starts writing uh, religious plays uh, for a while. And particularly, this is during World War II. Um, and so really writing plays addressing a lot of the concerns that people in England were having um, during the war. Um, and then she shifts again and uh, starts translating Dante. Because well, um, who wouldn't, right? You know, course. I mean, like all of us, sure. Yeah. Well, and that's the greatest story ever. It was an air raid and she had a copy of Inferno and she's like, oh, I've never read this. Um Charles Williams says it's really good, so maybe it'll be interesting. And she literally talks about it as if she fell in love with Dante and just thought he was the most amazing person ever and felt like she had a good connection with him that wasn't coming through in a lot of other translations. And so she decided to translate the Divine Comedy. Wow. Wow. Well, she... She got her, she got first class honors at Oxford, right? In medieval and modern languages. Correct. So she had a, a little bit of a leg up, but still translating, would that have been Latin? I'm sorry, uh, Italian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I probably would have just done crossword puzzle there in the area shelter. So she's a, an amazing person. But she, you know, it wasn't all kind of a bed of roses. She's got some... She had some struggles as well, especially in her romantic life. Can you unpack that a little bit for us too? Sure. Yeah. So um, she fell in love with somebody, wanted to marry him, um, wanted to have children with him. Um, and he kind of styled himself as someone who was above all of that um, and really, you know, just wanted a sexual relationship and didn't want to get married. And she, um, you know, didn't want that. Um, you know, she's like, I love you. I want to have children with you. Um, and so he um, he left. He was American, actually, came back to America and then promptly married somebody, which just devastated Sayers. Um, but then on the rebound, she then had a relationship with someone um, and ended up getting pregnant. She wasn't married at the time. Um, and we're talking, you know, mid-century um, England, um, she actually hid her pregnancy um, and hid it from um, her family, hid it from her co-workers. She took a leave of absence for an illness. Um, and um, interestingly, she had a cousin who had a home where she would care for um, children who weren't with their parents. And so she actually um, placed her son, John, um, with, with her cousin. And gradually, as he grew up, she revealed that uh, she was his mother, but kept a secret still. I mean, her parents were never told. Um, there's actually a heartbreaking letter that I read in the Wade Center where there's a suggestion that her mother was actually visiting the cousin and may have seen her grandson, but didn't know it was her grandson. Um, so yeah, hard life. And then she, after that marries, and I think she was hopeful that once she married, um, that she and her husband would be able to bring the son into the household. But um, her husband suffered from the effects of being in the war. 
And so he was starting to prove more difficult to live with and didn't seem to want to bring in her son. Um, and so she was never able to do that. Oh, yeah. So that, um, do you see that those life um, struggles, and I would even say uh, tragedies, how, how do, you, do, do you see those coming out at all in some of her theological observations or some of her interests uh, that she writes on theologically? I do. I really think that she is engaging with issues that she herself struggled with. Um, I find it interesting that, um, you know, she, she crafts characters and I'm thinking here primarily um, about more of her later works after she had experienced a number of things in her life. Um, and actually what comes to mind first is um, a play that she wrote um, called The Zeal of Thy House. Um, and it's about an architect who's rebuilding Canterbury Cathedral. Um, and he is essentially overcome with pride. And um, that is, proves to be his downfall quite literally because um, uh, the play is set up so that you have um, archangels who are kind of hovering. Um, and one of them at a certain point actually um, causes the rope that's holding him to break and he falls and he's injured and it's connected to this pride that he has. And Sayers herself, you know, because she had a difficult life, because she worked hard and she got where she was and she honed her craft and she was incredibly proud of that craft. I think she knew that that was something, you know, that she too struggled with. And so she can engage with that really well. Um, you know, this idea of the artist who, you know, is basically saying my art is so great that it, it, it not only rivals gods, but it might actually be higher than gods. Um, you know, and I like the fact that she then goes there and has uh, the archangel be like, nope, not not exactly the way you need to think about this. And you need to um, be humbled and repent and get a better sense of kind of your relationship to God. Yeah. Wow. That and that's amazingly self-perceptive on on her part to uh, to be able to recognize her incredible gifts and the dangers of those incredible gifts. You know, you you had uh, mentioned a moment ago that you worked through Sayers papers and and then um, from that and other research wrote this book called Writing for the Masses. And as you describe Sayers' work, you talk about her having integrity uh, to her work and her desire also to reach a, a wide audience. And in so doing, I really resonated with that. And then you, you talk about her as being a middle brow author. And, uh, you know, we've talked about Oxford, uh, the time when Lewis would have been there. You know, there's a lot going on there in Oxford in these uh, between the wars, you know, World War One, World War Two, and that time period in uh, in Oxford. But you call her a middle brow author. And I love how you talk about it in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. Um, so it's important 
to realize that Sayers is starting to write at a time that literary scholars talk of as high modernism. Um, so you have all of these authors like T.S. Eliot um, or James Joyce or Virginia Woolf um, who are writing really creative but also really difficult works, um, you know, playing with stream of consciousness, playing with all of these allusions to all of these things. So they're writing the kind of literature that um, it's really meant for the educated audience. You don't have a, you know, just person off the street, you know, walking by going, oh, the wasteland, that looks interesting. I'll pick it up and read it. And so, you know, and they were very conscious about, we want highbrow literature. We want literature for, you know, the artistic and the educated. So you have that on one hand, and then you've got the lowbrow literature, which is just, you know, okay, somebody sat down and dashed off some adventure story and didn't put much thought into it and it got published. Um, and Sayers, because she was Oxford, Oxford educated, um, she, even when she went into detective fiction, started to pull in um, a lot of interesting themes, interesting allusions. Um, the detective that she creates um, is someone who has all these great hobbies. Um, so he plays the piano and he collects, um, you know, ancient books. And, you know, so she's really able to draw in a lot of um, interesting things. And then she also starts really exploring interesting themes. Um, Gaudy Knight, which we've already mentioned, she's really looking at um, integrity. What does it mean to live in integrity? And what does it mean as a woman to live in integrity? Um, and, you know, the, the key issue that Harriet Vane is dealing with in that novel is, can I marry somebody in integrity? Um, is that an option for me? Um, and so she really is writing, you know, detective fiction, which has never been seen as highbrow intellectual literature, um, but infusing it with all of these interesting themes. And so kind of the middle brow is that middle area. It's meant to appeal to everybody, but it's also you know, taking it higher. I mean, and she'll even do things like she'll include French, which isn't translated, or all of these allusions, you know, and you can read the story without knowing, you know, precisely how to translate it or what all the allusions are. But it's also really enjoyable to kind of ferret out, um, you know, the answers to all of those. Oh, yeah, I, I uh, now now when I read it, not when I was an undergrad, but now when I read it, I can keep my Google handy and do some, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> do some word checking there. Yeah. Well, the other uh, way that I got to know Sayers is in her uh, a little booklet that you can get now called Are Women Human? And it was an essay or two essays, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. an essay uh, is it 1939 to a woman's society. Mm -hmm. Are Women Human? And I don't think I've ever seen a better title than than that. Can you uh, summarize just a little bit about what she's doing in here? Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite things that that she wrote. Um, it's just it fully demonstrates her intelligence, but then also her humor um, and how she is just kind of poking fun um, at the idea that 
you know, men are considered both men and human representatives of, you know, humanity, whereas women are just set aside. It's like, you're just, you're women, you're, you're not really human here, um, because you see things very differently. And so, you know, she goes through and really undercuts that, you know, and, and one of the favorite things that she talks about, she talks about her frustration when, um, reporters come and ask her questions like, so, you know, from the woman's perspective, how do you approach detective fiction? You know, and she's like, that's not gendered. I'm a writer. (laughs) I write detective fiction. Um, You know, or things like, um, how do you craft such realistic male characters? And she's like, I craft them as human beings, just as I craft the women. Um, You know, and so she really um, does an excellent job talking about, okay, there's a problem when we separate men and women so far from each other and don't actually recognize, okay, we're all human. So what do we have in common that we need to focus on? Oh, so yeah, exactly. Um, A a third example, I love uh, both that you said, and a, a third example that I've used at times in my classes, I've asked the students, what are braces? <clears throat> and then I go on to tell her story. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, uh, so this would be 19, uh, 1930s, women typically wore skirts, but they started to wear trousers. And so she relays this conversation, you know, men saying, you just don't look attractive in trousers. And her, she rejoins, you know, well, I'm really not trying to be attractive to you. But like a human, like you, I'm a human and I have two legs and they get cold and I don't like drafts, you know? And so I'm not wearing trousers to be like a man. I'm wearing trousers because I'm human, but I draw the line at braces. And I ask the student, you know, they're all thinking about orthodontia stuff. And I said, no, that's actually the, the British term for suspenders. And that, you know, on a, uh, for most women, their waist is gonna be smaller than their hips. And so they can keep up their trousers without those uh, added, um, uh, what do I wanna say, uh, accessories. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, I, I, I know students today, I mean, they just can't imagine that, that there would be a problem with women wearing trousers, but she unpacks the, um, the reason why men were offended. And it had to do with precisely what you're saying that men were seen as both veer male and humina human. And then women were only seen as femina just as females and not really reckoning with the fact that, oh yeah, your legs can get cold. And it was so interesting when I taught in Kenya, uh, there was a class we were in where one of the students, um, I taught uh, students from all across Sub-Saharan Africa. And there was one person who came from a more rural setting to uh, this school in, in Nairobi. And he was unfamiliar with women wearing trousers. And that was, this is the late 90s and few women were at this time. But some of the students, and again, in the city, not out in the country, but in the city would wear trousers. And and it was like I was back in Dorothy Sayers' time because the students said, well, I don't understand. Why do women not want to wear skirts anyway? Why are they wearing you know trousers? And I thought, well, because right now it's the rainy season and it's cold. <laughs> I thought, wow, I'm living right there in, in Sayers' world. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, uh, we've talked a lot about Sayers. She, she is just, she's done so much. Uh, 
there was also another author I'd hoped we would get at in our last couple of minutes here. I'd love to talk with you about Jane Austen, another amazing female author of an earlier time. Um, she, she just writes such incredible novels. Why, why do we love them so much? What is it about Jane Austen novels that just generation after generation, she just speaks to us? Yeah, I think, I think one of the amazing things about Austen is the way that she crafts characters and their interactions. Um, it still resonates with the types of interactions that we have with people today. Um, and so there's a way to, to read it and recognize, okay, yes, this is actually, you know, published in, um, you know, the early 19th century, but just interactions between people um, and um, the themes that she's exploring, I think we still can connect with. Um, and I don't know anybody who, you know, reads Pride and Prejudice and doesn't think, okay, Elizabeth Bennett, she's a pretty amazing character that has been created here, you know, and, um, you know, for most of us, it's not, okay, um, it's generally, I'm not like Elizabeth Bennett, but, oh, it'd be nice to be a little bit more like Elizabeth Bennett. <laughs> um, and so I just think she had a knack for creating interesting characters, um, interesting plots. Um, it's interesting going back to Pride and Prejudice, you know, that is a plot that we see replicated in so many contemporary you know, movies and books. And it's easy to go back to Pride and Prejudice and think, oh no, Austin's just doing what everybody else is doing. It's like, no, Austin did it first and it was really good. And that's why everybody else is copying it. Yeah, and for those uh, listeners that might not know the, the broad sketch of Pride and Prejudice, just go ahead and sketch that out. Sure. So um, you have um, Mr. Darcy who shows up in a small town and he's the rich bachelor um, that all of the mothers would be really interested uh, to get for their daughters. Um, and he is perceived as very arrogant. Um, and so Elizabeth, the um, main female character, doesn't like him. Um, for good reason. He actually insults her at certain points in the novel. Um, and so the process is um, kind of them learning about themselves and learning about the other person. And so what's interesting, I teach the novel as being an important statement about morality and figuring out where you go wrong and taking ownership for that. And um asking for forgiveness from another person. So, I mean, a lot of people see it as just, oh, it's nice. They didn't like each other and they come together and they get married at the end and it's all happy. But what's interesting to me is that both of the characters have to acknowledge the fact that in the ways that they have been interacting with each other and with others, um, they've been wrong, like seriously wrong about things in ways that are kind of character defects that they need to um, own up to and ask forgiveness for in order to move on. And um, it's fascinating because the final kind of reconciliation scene where we finally have the proposal, um, the proposal part is really short. The please forgive me part is really long. Wow. Wow. There's a, yeah, there's some deep theology right in that. Yes. Yes. What was Austin's life like? Did she, you know, what kind of experiences might she have had to draw on? 
Yeah, interestingly, like Sayers, she was also the daughter of a minister. Um, and, um, yeah, grew up, um, you know, in that household, um, had a number of brothers, was very close to her sister. Neither she nor her sister ever married. Um, once her father died, they lived with their mother, um, were actually supported by their brothers. So, you know, they weren't, um, wealthy in any means, um, by any means. Um, but she had connections through her, through one of her brothers who was adopted by a richer family to um, kind of a little higher class. She had connections from uh, with other brothers to the Navy and seeing that world. And um, so she knew various worlds in England at the time and was really just perceptive, you know, and th- as she, you know, saw what was going around, going on around her and the characters around her and was really able to craft stories that um, really resonate as being kind of real in that way. Um, and so unfortunately, um, she died in her early 40s. Um, and so um, she was in the midst of writing another novel, but we only have a couple chapters. Um, and it's just, it's sad because I like, you know, would love to think how much more would she have been able to accomplish if she had lived longer. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned Pride and Prejudice. Um, is that your favorite or do you have another that's your favorite? Actually, my favorite is Persuasion. Um, oh, and yes. Yeah. That's the one she completed right before um, right before her death. And um, I love it because I just, I love the themes in it. It's all about memories and regret and trying to pull your life together after um, after things have been kind of hard in the past. And um, yeah, I just, I think it's a brilliant novel. I, um, I've seen a lot of like the PBS um, have put these on, uh, on video and that, that's a great help too, to kind of visualize, um, to visualize them. Do you, um, and so I love watching the, the movies. What's the benefit of reading the book instead of just seeing the movie? Yeah. So reading. So, and I, I will say, I love watching the movies too. I mean, you know, I, I, anytime, you know, an Austin adaptation comes out, I have to go to the movies. Um, the benefit for me is that when I read it, I'm allowed to use my own imagination. I am not forced into somebody else's imagination of what characters look like or how lines are delivered. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, it's any adaptation um, has to narrow the focus. Um, You can't cover everything that's going on in a novel. And so um, I love being able to dive into that complexity and dive into that world um, that kind of allows me to explore things that maybe the filmmakers decided that they didn't want to explore. Right, right. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, How do you think these female authors, um, Austin from 200 or so years ago, and then Sayers from 100 or less years ago, how, how can they help shape our imaginations today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So 
I do a lot of work with women writers. I do work with male writers as well. Um, yay, Charles Dickens, right? Um, but I think what draws me to women writers is I'm fascinated by the way that they have navigated their worlds um, and their worlds being so different from ours. Um, you know, Jane Austen in Regency England, a very different world from Dorothy Sayers in the mid um, 20th century between the wars. Um, but watching them as women kind of navigate the issues of their own time periods in their works, I find fascinating because then I apply it to our time and think about how, you know, today women are navigating different things. And, you know, it can be encouraging to look back and think, oh, good, we don't have to deal with that. But then there's also that element of, oh, man, things just haven't changed, have they? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we still have those Darcy's around who are right. uh, annoyingly arrogant and, uh, <laughs> yeah, can learn from Elizabeth Bennett, but but you're right. The stories that Austin uh, presents and and uh, Sayers in her novels, the the characters have enough self understanding or are self reflective. At least for me, I think that invites me to to walk alongside them in their interior life as well. Um, and and kind of pose questions that maybe in my busyness I wouldn't think to ask, but it allows me just kind of to slow down, I guess, in a way, and uh, and and be in a space. I'm entertained for sure, but it but it there's a richness to it or a depth to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, going back to Gaudy Night, I mean, reading Gaudy Night as a woman who has chosen an academic career. Um, you know, and reading those struggles and, you know, what that means, it's like, wow, okay, that's, that's a valuable thing to talk about. And, you know, and it just, it's, to me, it's kind of amazing that she was able to do that when she did. And the issues still resonate today. Um, And I think that's why Gaudy Night is such a great introduction to Sayers, because it really um, does still resonate with a lot of things that uh, women are interested in and struggling with today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're um, taping this at the very end of April, um, but I know our listeners are thinking, what am I going to read for my summer holiday? And we've helped them on that. Gaudy Night or Persuasion? I mean, you know, so that's one decision already made. They can just pick those two books up and have a great time as they sit at the top of a slide like you did, right? And just with a book in your uh, in your hand. That, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Christine, for joining us on the Alabaster Jars. It's been such a fun time getting to know these amazing female authors and, uh, and your scholarship. Thanks for opening up that world to us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for joining us for this week's conversation on the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Christine Cologne, you can learn more about her work using the link in today's episode description. We upload new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, and join us back here next time for another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast.